So Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the a thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the a thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And let me lead us in prayer as we come to God's word. Our Father in heaven, You've told us what's really going on behind the scenes, and you've told us what is to come. And we pray, therefore, as we come to this book, that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to believe what you say, and so lives that are shaped by it. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are a few emails I've received in life that I think I will never forget. That's actually saying something, because if, if you don't know me well, I'm very forgetful. I have an extraordinary capacity for, for forgetting things, and it seems emails especially. Um, so if, if, you do, if you're owed an important reply, feel free to chase me. I won't be offended. But there are a few emails that I'll never forget. One of them was from a dear Christian lady asking me this question. 
What happens to Christians immediately after they die? In particular, do they go straight to be with Jesus? Or are they just in some kind of sleep state, unconscious, till the final day of judgment? She'd heard different viewpoints on it. She wanted to know what the Bible said. That's a good question. What happens when I die? Important question. But I'll never forget that email. Because after I wrote a reply, I discovered that unknown to anyone at the time, she was suffering from serious, what proved to be terminal, cancer. A few weeks after my reply, she died. That was why she was asking. See, what happens next wasn't a hypothetical question for her. It wasn't just a theological technicality. It wasn't just a kind of interesting Sunday night sermon topic. It was an imminent, personal reality. She was asking for herself. She was asking for any day now. And the reason I'm mentioning that tonight is because Revelation 20 is going to tell us the answer to her question. It's going to tell us what happens next after death. That's a question we should all care about, the answer to, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you call yourself that or not. The question of what happens when I die, is it just oblivion, nothingness? Do I last beyond? And if I do last, well, what kind of existence do I have? What do I have to look forward to or to dread? It's actually one of the biggest questions of life, although sadly, few people are willing to face it seriously, sometimes before it's too late. Revelation 20 urges us to look at this question. But before I dive in, I do just need to issue a warning, um, especially if you're someone just looking into Christian things, if you've kind of tuned in. I'm glad you're here. Um, but I have to warn you, the, the first six verses of the passage are quite puzzling, and different Christians have, have um, taken different ways of explaining them. So my appeal is to kind of stick with me through those first six verses as I explain what's going on, um, because it's really important um, that we get to the answer for that lady's email. Regardless, actually, of the specific pictures and what you make of them in the first half, the biggest question this passage poses for every single individual is where do I stand on the final day? Where will I be standing on the great day of judgment, God's final reckoning, where the passage ends and where human history will end? No more important question than that. And the answer is, if you're a Christian, well, on that day, you'll be totally and utterly safe. In fact, we're going to see even before that day, on the day we die, we're immediately totally and utterly safe. Whatever the world or the coronavirus or Satan, the spiritual enemy of God's people, throws at us, in Jesus, we are totally and utterly and eternally safe means in practice that from the very moment you die, you're, you're safe into Jesus' presence, awaiting a final resurrection day, a final resurrection body. But on the flip side, if you're not a Christian listening in tonight, we are really glad you're here, but, but Revelation's going to issue a stark warning. Whatever the world or the media or your own hunches tell you, God will warn that you're not safe outside of Jesus. So let's dive in. You'll see from the handout that we've got two points tonight. Um, it's on the, below the YouTube feed. There's a link to it if you want to have a look. We've got two basic points. 
The first is about now, what's happening now, verses 1 to 6, in this period of history. And the second one's what's happening next, at the end of history, verses 7 to 15. What's happening now, what's happening later? Um, as we dive into to point one, I think I do need to take a couple of minutes to explain why I think that verses one to six really do describe this period we're in, the period of the church age. Um, some of you may be aware that the a thousand years that's mentioned in verse three and verse four is sometimes called the millennium, and different Christians have different views about quite what it is and when it is. You can ask me more if you want a detailed uh, discussion afterwards. I'm very happy to do that, but let's just briefly address a few basic questions. Uh, how long is it? When is it? And what's going on? So first off, how long is it? Well, you might, if you're looking at the passage, you might think, well, that's completely obvious. It says in the Bible, it's 1,000 years. It's literally 1,000 years, surely. But actually, we've seen repeatedly in Revelation that numbers are used symbolically it's not particularly persuasive to suddenly change the interpretive approach and think this, this number must be literal. So, so a thousand years, I think, is being used symbolically here. It's a number of magnitude, big number. And it is a fixed period of time. It's not just vague. It's not just this period will go on and on. It's a fixed number. In fact, verse 7 tells us about a time when this period ends. So we're looking at a big, fixed period. That's how long which incidentally means the fact it's been 2,000 years since Jesus came is not something this, that we should worry about from this passage. Oh no, it's more than 1,000 years. No, the point was it's going to be a long time, but a fixed time. That's how long. What about when this period happens? Uh, so some Christians would think this is all in the future, all still to come, but I'm saying it, it refers to now. It refers to this period of history we're in right now, the church age. The time after Jesus' first coming, before his return. Why do I think that? Especially, as you might be pointing out, chapter 20, verse 1, starts, Then I saw. So hang on, doesn't this all happen after chapter 19? And the end of chapter 19 seemed to be a kind of end-of-the-world type stuff. Uh, we saw these two beasts that have been kind of enemies of God in verse 19 of uh, verse 19, they gather this massive army to, to wage war against God in a kind of final battle. And Jesus rides out as a conqueror and, and puts the rebellion down, puts a final end to tyranny, oppressive regimes, and ideology, deceptive ideologies. So it seemed like the end of chapter 19 was the end of the world, the, the final battle, the final judgment. And then chapter 20, verse 1, then I saw, we might be thinking, well, here we go, this is after that. But the Greek is literally, and I saw. It's not particularly marking time necessarily. If you want to mark time, you do something like verse 7, when the thousand years had ended. Or chapter 20, verse 1 says, after these things. Sorry, 19, verse 1, after these things. So this is just saying, and I also saw this. And actually, we've seen lots of times in, relation, in Revelation by now, we've seen it often kind of goes back to the start of a period. It, it often kind of cycles through to telling the same story from different perspectives. You might remember the seven seals running through human history, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, describing the same period. It's not always a kind of linear, here's the next event in the timeline. And that's what chapter 20 is doing. 
Because I said that 19 ended with this big war where the the beasts were waging war against God. And actually, we're going to get to that same event in verses 7 to 10 of chapter 20. Just have a look. Um, Satan, that has been figured as a dragon, God's enemy, um, assembles the nations. In verse 9, they march up again to kind of wage war on God and his people. That's the same event as the event in chapter 19. That's the big final battle. But chapter 20 is doing a bit of a flashback. It's kind of backing up the camera a bit and saying, well, hang on, let's take a run-up. Let's just watch, let's have the camera on, camera on Satan and see what's been going on with him in this period before the final battle comes. So I'm saying verses 1 to 6 describe this period we're in before Jesus' final return, before this final battle and final judgment. Now, if you want some background, you can go back and listen to the talks on chapters 12 and 13. Um, but I think 20 verse 1 is winding us back to that moment in chapter 12 when Jesus defeats Satan at the cross. We saw back then that the stripping of Satan's power and authority. Uh, Satan, um, Jesus won a, a great victory over his spiritual enemy, Satan, um, through his death and resurrection. A bit like if you were here this morning, we heard about David and Goliath, this king from Bethlehem facing up to God's enemy and conquering him. And as it's described there, Satan is cast down from heaven. Just like here in verse 1, he's, he's under angelic power and authority. In chapter 12, though, he's lost, but his rebellion carries on for a bit. He's really angry. He's lost the war, but he continues trying to fight. He opens up a new battlefront on earth. He does it through these two beasts, through two proxies, not fighting directly himself, fighting through oppressive political powers and false deceptive ideologies. These two beasts pressurize and deceive people into worshipping any uh, into people worshipping anything but Jesus and that's the same period that we're talking about here in verses 1 to 6 let me just show you that in verse 4 and i wonder if you've been around in this series i wonder if you recognize any of the language in verse 4 of chapter 20 i saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of god and those who'd not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. That verse is full of the language of chapters 12 to 14. This period where there's a worship war going on, where the church is witnessing and suffering for it, where the big question is, whose mark have you got on your forehead? That's just a symbol of who do you belong to? Do you worship the real and living God or one of the fakes, the beasts? That's the time period we're still in here with Christians witnessing and worshipping and suffering for it. Let me just bring it down to earth for a moment. In the first century, in the Roman Empire, Christians refused to sign up to the cult of the emperor because they believe Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. Jesus alone deserves the title King of Kings, and they suffered for it. Around the world today, Christians 
will say, even when they're in the, a, a huge minority, will say that Jesus is the one way to forgiveness. In the West today, Christians refuse to say that, that all roads lead up the mountain, that truth is relative, that morality is subjective, that you can get forgiven by God however you like. Because Jesus is Lord, not political correctness or secular ideology. And it's clear when you look around the globe or when you look in verse 4 here, that witness is costly. Christians suffer for it. It may be that in the name of uh, tolerance, actually, our culture may become selectively intolerant of what the Bible says. And then Christians will suffer for it. Because behind the scenes, the worship war carries on. Satan is waging through his agents, the beasts of state power and false ideology, waging this war and Christians get hurt. So I really think this is the same period we're talking about before Jesus comes back, a time when the beasts are at large, when the church witnesses, when Christians get martyred, and when they end up around the throne in heaven, crying out like they did in chapter 6, how long, O Lord, will this carry on for? How long before Jesus returns? So far, so samey. That's the kind of stuff we've been in for a few weeks now. But here's the thing that's new in Revelation 20. And it's so new. It's so striking. It is so remarkable that that a number of readers have have thought this can't possibly describe the period we're in. I wonder if you've noticed it when you heard the reading or if you've been reading verses 1 to 3. Because it really looks like Satan is bound restrained, restricted, locked away. I mean, that's the pictures in verses 1 to 3. He's shut in. And in 4 to 6, it looks like believers who die are are enthroned and reigning and ruling and secure. It's just really strikingly positive, verses 1 to 6. Striking that, because in chapter 13, it seemed like Satan was raging and doing his worst, opening up the fight on on the ground. And, And don't we know from 1 Peter that that Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion? And don't we know from Ephesians 6 that we wrestle against spiritual forces? There's this spiritual battle going on. Even this morning, we were thinking about how scary an enemy Satan can appear to be. But Revelation 20 says he's on a leash. He's chained up, restrained. And if you're thinking, really? Really? Right now? Listen to Jesus in Mark 3. When Jesus was questioned about his relationship with Satan and evil spiritual power, Jesus said that uh, he was actually bringing down Satan's kingdom. And then he said this, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus saw his first coming as an exercise in binding Satan, God's enemy, and plundering his house. And if you want to know what does that really mean, well, two chapters later, Jesus frees a demon-possessed man who no one could bind. He was too strong to control, but Jesus can control him because he's binding Satan. A bit later in the Gospels, Jesus sends his disciples out on a mission trip, and they come back and say, wow, people listen to us. Even the demons listen to us. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. 
See, Jesus, at the cross, beat Satan. His accusations can't stand. And this passage is saying he has bound Satan, restrained him. That is, Jesus is plundering his house day after day across the globe as people hear the good news of Jesus and some of them turn from worshipping idols to worshipping the real living God. Notice in verse 3, it is the area of deceiving the nations. That's the specific area in which Satan is bound. Verse 3, this angel threw him into the pit, shut it, and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. So it's Satan's ability to deceive the nations. Now, this is not saying that Satan's not active at all in our world. It can't be saying that. We know the rest of the, Bible, the New Testament um, says that he, he is active. He does blind people to the truth. He's not entirely absent until he's finally judged and sent to hell in verse 10. But he is heavily restricted. Specifically, he doesn't have the ability right now to do what verses 7 and 8 talk about. 7 and 8 talk about Satan being released from this prison and then deceiving all the nations into this kind of global attack on God and his people. Satan doesn't have the power to unite the globe against Jesus and his people right now which is actually really good news. Even when the church feels like it's going backwards, when the gospel seems to retreat in one nation, it arises in another. Jesus is plundering Satan's house. And I really think we need to hear this as a church family. Um, if, you, if you've slightly zoned out in all the kind of technical following through the verses, just kind of get back on board the bus at this moment. I think we really need to hear this as a church family. It's one of the things that struck me um, in the few years I've, I've been here at Chalmers. I think... As a church family, we have a really strong awareness of spiritual warfare. Perhaps from the the painful recent history we've been through, we take the spiritual enemy seriously. And that actually is a really good and healthy thing, as long as it drives us to prayer, not just worry. And confident prayer will only happen if we realize the victory of Christ has already happened over Satan. If we take that as seriously as the reality of spiritual warfare. Just think about it in terms of this morning. Um, we, we saw David's, the king's showdown with Goliath. Where are we standing in salvation history in that story? Not before the battle, terrified, but after we've seen our king defeat Satan at the cross. If you don't believe me, believe Jesus. The Great Commission, what does he start it with? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's not Satan's world, it's his. People do actually become Christians when we have the courage to share the good news. Though that's not to say that witnessing doesn't hurt. Remember verse 4. Satan still works in the background. He still has his beasts. He still causes opposition, both ideological and physical. It's still a fight. And it's a fight that, by the world's standards, it often looks like we'll lose. I mean, in verse 4, people get killed for being a Christian. But we need to remind ourselves that on what really matters, 
Satan is bound. Jesus is taking the gospel to the nations. And actually, even for Christians who do suffer, and this is the encouragement of verses 4 to 6, those who suffer, whether for their witness or just their refusal to, to worship a different God, even when there's real pressure and suffering and even martyrdom, well, there is total safety and security beyond our final breath. So here's the answer to that email from verses 4 to 6. What this is describing here, these, these believers who are living, it, it's described as the first resurrection. It's not talking about the final resurrection, when we get resurrection bodies and we're put into the new creation. That's going to come in, in chapter 21. We're not there yet. Now, this is describing, notice verse 4, the souls of believers. It's talking about all believers, so yes, those who've been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, but also those who've not worshipped the beast. That is, all Christians. What happens to the souls of all Christians when they die? Well, immediately they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, for this whole period. It's just like Jesus said to the repentant thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. It's like Paul says in Philippians as he as he waits to find out what Rome will do with him in his chains, I desire to go and be with Christ. It's like I wrote in that email to this dear Christian sister, the very next thing you will know when your eyes close for the last time is seeing Jesus Christ face to face in glory. He will take you home to be with him right now in heaven. Verse 5, I think, makes it clear that this isn't the final resurrection uh, with new bodies. Um, some think maybe this is describing a time when Christians come on earth to rule for a thousand years with Jesus. But I don't think it can be that. Nowhere in Scripture does it suggest Jesus returns two more times, once to start this, once to end it. Also, this passage doesn't say the reign is on earth. Actually, where has the throne been through Revelation? Well, in heaven. The bringing of heaven to earth happens in chapter 21. We're not there yet. That's why John in verse 4 is seeing souls. That's why in verse 5 he says the rest of the dead. These people are physically dead, but their souls are with the Lord in heaven, in the heavenly throne room. And it fits what we've seen in the rest of the book. Chapter 6, the martyrs around the throne crying, how long, O Lord? Or the 144,000 praising God around the throne, that symbol of all of God's people. They were worshipping during the worship war, during this period, the church age. And finally, on this point, notice they are in the throne room. Striking the, the kind of reversal. These are people, some of these Christians, seem to have been utterly trampled under the feet of the beasts, seem to have been outgunned, outmuscled by the dragon and his cronies seem to have been squashed under the lions of Rome or blown up by the guns and bombs of extremists today or just gradually starved by the secret police and re-education camps still around the globe in some nations. They're seemingly powerless, imprisoned, exiled. Even John himself, the author, is in exile as he writes this. But look how they end up. Verse 4, they came to life 
and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in this first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. There'll be priests of God and of Christ. They'll reign with him for a thousand years. Reigning, ruling, utterly secure and safe with Christ. There are many times and places in world history where it looks like the church is losing. So small, so weak looking, so painful. The beasts look so strong as they crush the witness. But the reality is, behind the scenes, the dragon is already defeated, is currently restrained, and the gospel's going out to the nations. So whatever you do, Don't give up on Jesus because it's costly. Don't give up on Jesus because it's too scary. It's interesting, some of the applications in this back few chapters of Revelation keep mentioning cowardice amongst other sins to be wary of. The temptation to to side with, with the beasts, with Satan, because it just feels safer. But actually there is nowhere safer than the throne room of heaven. Jesus, again, put it like this. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And actually, from verses 7 onwards, hell is where we're going to turn. Because when we think about what's happening next, well, we're going to see the judgment of Satan and then the judgment of all humanity So firstly, from verse 7 onwards, Satan, I've said that he assembles this kind of final rebellion, this this big army, uh, global army, to to fight against God and his people. Um, Now, we don't precisely know what this is going to quite look like on the ground, and I'm not about to speculate um, about it. But the one thing that's really clear from verses 8 and 9 is that it's not going to be like the recent American election. Why do I say that? Well, it's not going to be protracted. It's not going to kind of last a long time. There's going to be no sense in which the victory hangs in the balance, at least at one point. And there'll be no disputing the outcome. Just look at verse 9. Satan and all these armies march up to take on, the, the surround the, the camp of the saints in the beloved city, to surround God's people. But no sooner are they marching up to fight when, verse 9, fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And it's over. Just like that. It's actually very hard to win a battle against your creator. I don't know if you've ever thought that. You're always fighting on his turf. It's not hard for God to stop the world and judge everything and everyone. That's not hard. In fact, the only reason he's holding it off is so that more people can hear about forgiveness for the gospel to go out in this period of the worship war. But when the moment comes, when God says, okay, enough is enough, I'm done with evil in my creation, it will not be a long fight. As Pharaoh learnt to his cost, as the prophets of Baal learnt to their cost as fire came down, it's not hard for the living creator to win in his own world. In fact, he's the one who let Satan off the leash, verse 7, to trigger the final rebellion to put it down. 
And the moment when Satan is finally defeated is such good news. Verse 10, the deceiver, the one whose lies have caused such damage, such destruction across human history and civilizations in individual lives and families. So many promises that if you just go against God's way, things will be better, and it's not. Finally, finally, that one is is removed and punished, tormented day and night forever and ever. It is really good news. If you have ever been grieved by the presence of war in this world, it's good that we remember it today. If you've ever been grieved by wicked acts, abuse, deception, evil in this world, if you've ever asked yourself, God, when will you do something? Well, here's the moment. As Satan is put down, all that is untrue and unholy and wrong is put down. But here's the striking thing. Sometimes in Revelation you get a little pause and we sing a song, we rejoice. There's no pause at the end of verse 10 because Satan is not the only person who would have to be removed to get rid of evil in the world. I wonder if you've thought about that. The moment when God says enough is enough will be a moment of judgment on humanity as well as God's spiritual opposition. And that's where we head in verse 11. Let me read um, briefly from there. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books according to what they had done. There is no place to hide from this day of reckoning. There's no cloud cover because the sky itself has fled. And there's no hole to hide in, no deep ocean trench you could maybe be overlooked because verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who are in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who are in them and they were judged each one of them according to what they had done. Notice the repetition of what the basis of judgment will be. Books opened, and the dead are judged, verse 12, by what is written in the books according to what they had done. So let me ask you this. Whether you're in the building or or listening at home, If every single moment of your life, every thought, every word, every deed was recorded in a detailed diary, who would you be happy to let read it? I don't don't even know if I could bring myself to read it, let alone a, a best friend or a spouse or a parent. And so how about the utterly perfect, holy judge of the world, my maker? If you're thinking, well... I mean, I'm on social media, so I'm kind of used to having you know, some pictures and videos of what I'm doing. Well, the difference here is that we're not editing out the bad bits, not collating the best bits. I'm not uploading the time I, I lost my patience with the children or I told a lie to get out of an embarrassing situation or I proudly talked about someone behind their back. It's actually a terrifying thought. And it is going to happen. The books are already there. The the transcripts, the the logs, they're already written. It's a picture of God's omniscience. He knows everything. 
He knows it all. He's seen it all. He understands the thoughts and heart behind it all. Even if we've kept it hidden from everyone else on the planet, he has seen it and noted it. It's an absolutely terrifying moment. Except there is another book. Did you notice? At that moment when you or I are summoned forward from the vast multitudes to answer for ourselves, to answer for what we've done in our lives, there's a second book being checked. The Lamb's book, the book of life. That's a record of every single person who's trusted in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. The very death in our place that we're about to remember as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And so at that moment, as I as I bow my head in shame, even at the failures I can remember, let alone all that the Lord knows. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ steps up and says, he's one of mine. She's with me. Look, you can look up his name in my book. It's actually the most important question in life. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Well, to take the picture language out, have you trusted in Jesus as your saviour yet? Have you taken refuge in the only place that provides safety, shelter on that final day? We heard earlier that believers are safe from the second death. And now we see in verse 15 what that second death actually is. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, He was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus himself spoke of hell as a place of fire. Look, I know it's not popular to talk about hell. It's not enjoyable to to hear about it. It's not enjoyable to speak about it. But Jesus, the most loving and truthful human being ever to walk the planet, talked more about it than anyone else in the Bible. Because he loved people and wanted to warn them. See, anyone who's not yet found peace with their maker through Jesus should be really scared of this picture, of what's coming next. See, the only reason I was able to reply to that lady's email with reassurance was because she was trusting in Jesus. His face would be the next thing she'd see, and it would be his smiling face, welcoming her into the heavenly throne room, dressing her in white linen given to her, washed in his blood. But for those who've refused Jesus, the the next thing will be facing the judge on the throne of the universe with no excuses, trying to defend an indefensible record in God's world, with no lamb to pay the price because we didn't give Jesus a second thought. And so lovingly, God warns us tonight, don't let it be you. Trust in the Lord Jesus and stick with the Lord Jesus. Don't buckle under the pressure. I know the beasts can be scary. But even now, Satan is restrained. Christians are safe. And even if we suffer, we will reign with Christ. And on the final day, we can't be touched. Written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So then as I close, I know it can feel risky being a Christian, more and more so, I think, in our culture. 
standing up as a Christian unashamedly, boldly, living and speaking for Jesus in a world that doesn't, it can feel risky. It feels risky in parts of the Middle East. You might get threats of violence or retribution or just economic ostracism. It can feel risky as a student. You're trying to make friends at uni at school. Do you really want to tell them you believe all this? I even found this week it could feel risky at the school gate as a parent. When I explain that, actually, I think Jesus is the one way to be forgiven. But there's no safer place to be than sticking with Jesus. In fact, that is the only safe place to be, however much it costs. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this picture showing us what's really going on now and what is to come. And we praise you so much for the Lord Jesus, for a place of safety, a refuge in a scary and turbulent world. I pray for anyone here or listening online who doesn't yet know you, Lord, please would you speak to their hearts, show them the situation they are in, and bring them to trust in Jesus. We pray that for his glory. Amen.